We're moving through 1 Peter. And 1 Peter started off, if you remember, talking about um, this great salvation that the Lord is giving us. And if you take a long lens and look at the whole uh, book of Peter, what he's prepping us for is this whole idea of suffering. We've touched on it, right? It's not necessarily suffering like getting dragged into the middle of the street, getting beat up by the, by the police or getting thrown in jail, although that was happening, maybe not in official capacity, but it was happening. But he's talking about insults, mockery, mockery uh, being ostracized, uh, feeling belittled, um, uh, being reviled. So a lot of it is verbal, a lot of it is social interaction type stuff that makes you feel like, boy, it really is tough to be a Christian in a place where everybody hates Christians. Um, And so that is the world they dealt with. I think you are probably feeling that increasingly. And then I don't know about you, if you notice, like last week, we just hit this text that starts talking about holiness. You know, be holy for I am holy. Don't live like this. You're supposed to live like that. And you're like, I thought we were talking about suffering. So I started thinking about topic changers. I don't know if you ever are in a conversation with someone and Maybe it's just a pet peeve of mine, but they're like chronic topic changers. Here you're on one topic, and then they change the topic. And you're like, man, I I wasn't done with that one, but all right. So you kind of follow along, and right when you start getting into that topic, they switch the topic again. You know, um, this is a bad way of writing. If if you submit a paper when you were a kid at school to your English teacher, and your your paper starts talking about football, and you start talking about how you like pets, and at the end of it, you talk about the kind of car you want, they're going to ask you, what in the world is your thesis? You're all over the place, right? Stay on a topic. And so when sometimes you read the Bible and it feels like that, you're like, okay, suffering and he's getting us prepared. We've been saved so we can be ready for suffering. Be holy. You're like, what? Okay, what is the connection? Here's the connection. The connection is when you are under pressure by the world to not be Christian, that pressure is the pressure to not live a holy life. When you live like you're supposed to live for Christ, it's hard enough to do it. It's hard enough to fight temptations. But when the world around you is insulting you every time you make a good step, every time you do something that reminds them of Christ, the one they've rejected, it makes it harder. It makes it harder to endure suffering. It makes it harder to live a holy life. So what we're going to see in today's passage is a further encouragement for holiness, a further encouragement to live holy lives. Even if everyone around you is living differently, even if everyone around you is mocking you every time you do something, they they even use the word holy as a sort of pejorative term. You're holy, you know, um, you're holier than thou, you're on your high horse, you're looking down on us, you think you're better than everyone, you're such a hypocrite, all this kind of stuff to kind of put the squeeze on you to go, you know what, maybe I won't be so holy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a, you know, maybe I should just tone it down a little bit. But Peter doesn't leave room for toning it down. He wants you to live a holy life. So let's look at First Peter, and we are into chapter 2 now, the first verses of chapter 2. And we're going to take a, a nice-sized chunk today in the first 10 verses. First Peter chapter 2. And if anyone doesn't have a Bible, slip your hand up and we'll make sure we get you one. It's important that you, know, you follow along with us. Um, so let's look at the first three verses. 
So, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because there's so much text we're going through today, let's just pause there and just adjust the first three verses for a minute. And what you'll notice here is he's talking about what holiness is not. He just finished talking about what holiness does look like. Loving one another earnestly with a sincere brotherly love. It looks like love. But there's also what it does not look like. These are the things you have to stamp out of your life. You have to rigorously, um, diligently stamp these things out of your life. Put them away like malice, which is just kind of general evil. Then you get specific deceit hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now, I'm not sure it's hard to get into Peter's mind and think, I know what Peter was thinking. But there were a lot of sins he could list here. And he lists these. And I like to ask the question, why? Why, why these five? And not like he didn't put adultery, he didn't put murder, you know. Why these five? And I think, I think they have something to do with the way in which we crave what can't be filled by the world. You you think of uh, Psalm 23, verse 1, where the the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, if you reverse it, the Lord is not my shepherd, I'm going to always want, and it's never going to be satisfied because I don't know the shepherd. And so there's this wanting, there's this desire, and it has to do with malice. And when he gets specific, you know, why do you ever lie? Why deceit? We're always trying to get something. You're always trying to protect something. You're always trying to... You know, it's 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 seems like the easy route. It's too hard. You know, if I say the truth here, I might get fired. If I say the truth here, I might get in trouble. If I say the truth here, they might think less of me. So you're always trying to protect something that you feel like you have to protect through deceit. And then there's hypocrisy, you know, uh, wearing a mask, uh, pretending you're something that really you're not because you want to please other people. You're desiring that someone else be pleased and, you know, they, they wouldn't be pleased if they saw the real you. And so you wear a mask and maybe you get pretty good at that. And then there's envy. You desire what other people have. You don't have it, but you want what they have. And then there's slander, the kind of things that we do behind other people's backs when we are envious of them and we want to tear them down with other people so that we feel a little bit better about ourselves. So there there are incredibly selfish motives behind these kinds of sins, and that's why they're malice. That's why they're evil. We're always reaching for things that we want, upset about the things that we want that we can't have. And so we do things like we lie and we do things like we slander And we are envious. And what I love about what Peter is saying here is that holiness is not about memorizing rules. Holiness is about switching that desire. All those crooked desires to desire something else entirely. He says, instead of doing all that, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation like newborn infants you remember he said we're born again right he's mentioned that a couple times already that by god's amazing grace we are reborn and just like newborn infants that long for milk you need to have that longing you need to have that craving to live a holy life so 
maybe there's some of you in here who've never been around a crying baby. One of my most satisfying moments in life was we had uh, Raquel, and she was very small, and um, she hated it when she was in the car seat. She hated it when she was hungry. I mean, every baby. This is my Raquel. This is every baby, right? Everyone's looking at Raquel like, interesting. Let's get a profile. I'm profiling every baby right now, right? They hate it when they're hungry. They hate it when they're tired. Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Tired, go to sleep, right? But no, it's tired. I'm going to cry because I don't know what to do. Um, but they long for milk. They long for it when they're hungry. They cry. It's urgent. They don't wait around. You know, they just are belting out the biggest cry they can belt out because they want that food. And so uh, one time I had a family member who didn't have any kids yet and was constantly frustrated when my baby was crying. Oh, can't you do anything about that crying baby? Oh, can't you, can't you like discipline her? I'm like, she's like three months old, man, you know. Can't, can't, can't you get her to stop? Oh, you know, oh. All right, well, that person has some babies now of his own. And I talk about a tune that changes, right? You ever felt tempted to be the I told you so guy? Well, that's me every time, you know? So you don't understand that imagery until you've been around it, until you've been around that, that little cry, that distinct cry. That's not that the baby's hurt. It's that the baby's hungry. It's a hungry cry. I'm saying as, as babies, spiritual uh, children of God, this is what we should be craving. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying when you become a Christian at first, you're going to crave spiritual milk for a little while, but then like you're going to graduate and get onto other things. That's, not, that's where that metaphor ends. He's just saying little babies crave milk. Christians crave this pure spiritual milk. So then the question is, what is that milk? What am I craving? And some people say, well, it's the word of God. He's mentioned the word of God a couple of times, that it's the word of God that has birthed us, the good news which preached to us in chapter 1, verse 12. And so I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. But if you'll notice, he quotes a psalm from the Old Testament. And Peter quotes a lot of Old Testament. But one of the quotes is when he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That comes from a psalm, and I think we have it uh, up here, or we'll make up in a minute, but that comes from Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So what does it mean to taste the Lord and taste that he's good? Well, it means to take refuge in him. What does that mean? Well, the imagery of a refuge It's a hiding place. It's a place that you go so the storm doesn't get you. It's a place where you go so that the army can't uh, capture you. It's a place of safety. It's a place of protection. What are you protected from in the Lord's refuge? His wrath. Okay? This is the message of the gospel. We have fallen short of God's glory. We deserve eternal separation. We deserve eternal condemnation. And the only way to escape that punishment, that wrath, that separation is to hide in Christ, to be hidden in Christ. Christ is the refuge. Okay, that's what that passage is saying. That's what it means to taste him. Now, when he's talking about craving milk, and then in the next line says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, you can see the connection. What you've tasted, you want more of. You're going to crave it. You're going to want it badly. You're going to cry out for it. You want it so badly. It's a longing. It's an urgent craving. Okay? 
So what is that spiritual milk? It's the Lord. We crave Him. Think about it. Even if the answer was the Bible, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible isn't the fourth member of the Trinity. Why do we love the Bible? Why do we delight in it? Because it's His Word. Because it reveals to us who He is. I'm not hungry for Scripture. I'm hungry for the Lord. Scripture gives me access to Him. Right? The Bible is the pantry that I raid when I'm hungry. But it, the food is the Lord Himself. And so what He's saying is holiness is a change of craving. Back to Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When do I get to the point where I don't want anything anymore? When the shepherd himself is my desire. When the shepherd himself is the one that I'm focused on. And so that's the message throughout Scripture. Peter's just picking up on that. It's not necessarily new. He's just reminding us kind of in a fresh way. Now, if you've ever heard of an infant crying for milk, hey, that's how we long for the Lord. We long for Him. So I don't know if any of you in here, when you think of holiness, you think of specifics. I'm going to be holy today. To be holy today, it means I don't yell. It means I don't scream. It means I read the Bible for at least an hour. It means I have to pray for at least an hour. It means I have to do... That's misguided. Holiness means I hunger for the Lord. And if I'm hungry for Him, here's one thing you never have to remind me of. I try to use apps on my phone and plug things in my calendar because I forget stuff. I, I forget things all the time. So I need the calendar on my app. Little chirps that remind me, bing, go to this appointment, bing, you got this lunch with this person, right? I never plug in there, bing, eat. You'll never see me put a reminder or a post-it note to remind myself to eat, okay? I have to remind myself to stop eating, okay? I have to, like, count calories or something. I need accountability, guys, all right? Because I will just won't stop eating, right? It's just bottomless. Well, this, this is what he's trying to say. That's how holiness is supposed to work. A lot of us are, are you know, um, feeling burned out on a model of holiness that's focused on rules and specifics and how long am I supposed to read Scripture? How many days am I supposed to do a quiet time? Am I allowed a day off? How long should I pray when I get into my prayer closet? Should I have a prayer closet? Is it a literal one? Do I push the clothes out of the way and get in there? You know, or, or does it matter if it's in the kitchen? Or on a walk. I don't know. Like, how? what's the holier option? Our focus is to hunger for the Lord. And when you hunger for the Lord, you crave Him. You access His Word. You start praying. You get around other people that are hungry for Him. You know, it tires you to be around people too much that don't hunger for Him. And it energizes you to be around people that hunger for Him. And so this is what He means when He says, guys... Holiness is about craving the Lord, like, like if he's your milk. And when you do that, look what he says, you'll grow up into salvation. Salvation is like clothes that were handed down to you from an older sibling. And they fit well enough, but you're still going to grow into them. And they don't fit perfectly yet. They fit, but it's not perfect yet. Right? You're growing up into it. God has saved you. He's brought you in. And you're growing up into uh, salvation how do we do that? Craving Him, longing for Him. And of course that means Scripture. Of course it means prayer. It means all of those things. And it means putting away the stuff that He talked about in verse 1. It does mean not doing those things that you know grieve the Lord. And then He says, um, uh, which I think is encouraging when He moves into verse 4 and following, 
Man, holiness, that sounds overwhelming. Holiness sounds really uh, difficult. But holiness is a process. Holiness isn't something you get overnight. You don't, you don't go to a seminary and you graduate with holiness. Right? You don't go to a particular church service and it was done so well that when you left there, you were holy. You weren't holy and now you're holy because you left the church service. Holiness is a process. Holiness is something that continues to happen. Look what he says in verse 4. As you come to him, as you come to him, not when you came to him, as you continue to come to him. You don't come to him one time. It's a continual process. A living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. My present tense, something that's happening. You are being built up. You are in a process. Now, we don't say, hey, God, hey, I'm in process, and use that as an excuse to do everything he just said not to do in verse 1, right? We don't use process as an excuse to just be lazy. But what a relief when you mess up and you know God has forgiven you and you feel like, oh, man, maybe I'm not even a Christian. I, this is hard. More than a couple of times, I've had someone approach me and say, I gave my life to the Lord, I'm walking the Christian life, and there's certain things I keep messing up, I keep messing up, and it, I, I hate it, I can't believe, I just, it, it hangs me up. Am I even a Christian? My typical response, if you weren't a believer, you probably wouldn't even be upset about it. The fact that there's something in you that wants to fight, the fact that there's something in you that goes, man, ah, that's not right, that this pleases God. That is a softening of the heart that the Lord does. And so he uses this language of coming to him continually, that we are built up, that we are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. For what? To offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. And so it's a process. It's not something that happens overnight And it is something that is made possible by Christ. Look at what he says about Jesus. Again, not being a topic changer, but how are we built up? How is this happening? How do we taste the Lord? How do we live in holiness? Verse 6, it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. What he's saying there is, guys, you're being built up as a spiritual house. Do you remember the psalm that says, unless the Lord builds it, the laborers build in vain, right? So the cornerstone has to be Christ. And everyone is sort of depicted as a builder in this passage. There's builders, everyone's a builder, trying to build your life, trying to build your purpose, trying to build the thing that you're trying to do, build your family, build your reputation, whatever it is you're trying to build. But believers are the ones that build what they're building on Christ as that cornerstone. All the bricks will sag, the mortar will crack, everything is going to be a architectural mess unless there's this big cornerstone that supports all those smaller stones okay this is just basic masonry from ancient times right and so if we don't have that cornerstone we can't be built up we'll be a sloppy sagging mess but because christ is the cornerstone you are being built up you are being built up and what i love about that guys is he's not saying go home and build yourselves up He's saying, you're being built up. By whom? By God himself. 
architect. He's the, he's the mason. He's the one that's, that's getting the blueprint. And he's the one that's doing it in you. When we go home and we operate in our own strength, I am not going to click on that thing today. I am not going to yell today. I am not going to do this today. Oh, I did it again. God, for real this time. Watch me. I got this. No, he doesn't. He's sick of watching you. He wants you to lean on him, depend on him. So it changes the prayer. Lord, I messed up again today. And instead of saying, but this time, for real. No, saying, there, won't be, there, will, there will be a next time and a next time and a next time. I cannot break out of this cycle unless you do something. And that's a different kind of prayer of dependence, like an infant that can't get that milk unless it is given. And so we are dependent on the Lord. Now there is a passage here as he switches from those who do build on the cornerstone to those who do not build on the cornerstone, those who cannot live holy lives because they don't know the Savior. They don't want to know him. They reject him. It says, the honor is for you who believe, verse 7, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, pause there a second. What's happening there? These builders are trying to build their enterprise, trying to build what they're trying to build in a spiritual sense. It's not an actual Tower of Babel, right? But a spiritual sense is what they're doing. And they come across this stone, and this stone is a different shape. It's a different size. It doesn't look like the other stones. And like fools, they go, what is this? Somebody didn't cut this right? It doesn't look like the stones that we're working with here. Get the stone out of here. Okay? So it's not about physically stumbling over the stone. It's about being offended by the stone. Who cut this? I want, I want names. I want names. Who put this here? It doesn't look anywhere remotely close to the rest of these stones. Some idiot must have carved this. This is insane. I want someone's head. Somebody that put this here. They're offended that it's there. They're not just... Um, kind of oblivious to it or kind of well let's just ignore it they hate it they don't want it there get it out they reject it ironically it's what they need for their house to stand but they reject it so it says the stone that is the cornerstone has become a stone of stumbling for them it's become a rock of offense for them and then this gem they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do now, if you're even half awake this morning, that should wrinkle your forehead a little bit. They disobey. They stumble as they were destined to do. Here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to take the next 20 minutes unpacking predestination, foreknowledge. Am I scared of it? No. Some of you have been around. You know I love gnawing on that bone. But the reason why I don't want to linger too long is because Peter doesn't. Peter's writing in a time when he drops words like foreknowledge. When Luke writes in Acts and he talks about divine appointments and divine, they don't unpack these themes. They just drop it in there like it's assumed. We don't assume it because we have this real strong sense of what's fair, of what's right, of everybody being even Stephen and giving equal opportunity. We're all equal opportunity officers that work at the spiritual chambers of commerce, right? We, we, we want everything to be perfectly fair, but they didn't have those categories back then, and so there wasn't an, another chapter kind of explaining that. They just drop it in there for a different reason, which I'll get to in a moment. 
I also want to recognize that because we have these categories, that does kind of hit us like a two by four, right? Like, whoa, 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 they were destined to disobey? That doesn't sound very fair, okay? So what I want to do, kind of a challenge, is to take a couple of minutes to kind of give a little bit of an explanation, a little bit of a orientation to the landscape that the Bible offers in terms of this thought, this topic. And then I want to talk about why he would even drop this in here because it's important, okay? If we get hung up on this, if we get hung up on this, ultimately, we won't be able to receive what Peter's putting down, okay? So let's try to massage it just a little bit, enough to swallow the pill. It might be a tough one. We can swallow it and then take the medicine that Peter's offering, okay? So what does he mean when he says something that sounds crazy like, they stumble because they disobey the word, comma, as they were destined to do. Now, some people think that it just means uh, they weren't destined to disobey. They were destined to stumble when they disobeyed. I don't think that's true because I think what it's referring to is the disobeying, the stumbling, the rejection of verse 7, the not believing of verse 7, the offense that's taken by them in verse 8. All of those are the same thing. The stumbling, the disobeying, the rejection, it's all the same. And so I think parsing it out doesn't really work. There's a sense in which there are people that were destined to respond and people that were destined to not respond. The word destined is tough because it makes, us, it, makes it sound like a puppeteer that controls, you know. He just puppeteers people and controls them. Well, the Bible tells us he doesn't do that. But James tells us God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. God doesn't himself sin. And so he doesn't make somebody sin. However, at the same time, right, maybe you might think paradoxically, you know, um, it's hard to see how these ideas are compatible. But at the same time, you think, okay, we're taught Ephesians 1, you know, Acts, a couple different places, Acts 2, we're taught that the plan of redemption was foreknown foreordained, put into effect before the foundation of the world. Okay? We've talked about that before, so I don't want to belabor that. Before the world was even created, the plan of redemption was already intact. That plan of redemption involved the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ so that he would be raised again. For that plan to happen, for Christ to be crucified, he would have to be rejected. And so in that sense, it was foreordained that this Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would be rejected so that he can save. So it was foreordained. Now, obviously, um, people that crucified Jesus, they're not off the hook. Peter preaches his first sermon. He says, you crucified him. You did it. It was at your hands. And then they're cut to the heart. Oh, What do we do? How can we respond? Repent and believe. This was an awesome gospel moment for them. But he doesn't say, listen, you didn't know what you were doing. You weren't in control. God kind of took over and your eyes rolled in the back of your head and you just were like zombies crucifying Christ. No, you hated him. You didn't just sheepishly walk him to the cross. You punched him. You plucked his beard. You yelled crucify him. Pontius Pilate did everything he could to try to, he beat him so bad that maybe you would feel bad for him. And you, even though he was 
all the skin was missing off of his back and he's near bleeding to death, you still wanted him to experience the most excruciating crucifixion possible. We try to offer up this other criminal, this obvious criminal, and say, make a trade? No, crucify him. You did it, and you wanted it. No one can ever say, well, I did it because I didn't want to, but out of some other force, some other power made me do it. No, I craved it. I wanted it. I wanted to envy. I wanted to slander. I enjoyed deceit. No one can ever say, God made me do it. But somehow in the complexity of God's wisdom, he, there's nothing that ever happens, good or bad, that doesn't fit within his plan. Nothing ever happens that disrupts God's plan. God never has to adjust on the fly like we do all the time, right? Because something happens unexpected. Nothing happens unexpected. His plan is intact. How those two wed together, there's a lot that can be said on that. So here's a deal we'll make, okay? In our growth groups this week, there's the normal questions that we're going to go through, we go through like we do every week. And then there's a third page, and I put at the top, bonus section, up to you. All right? You want to delve a little bit deeper? You want to cut into some of these verses? Think a little bit harder about how this works, this whole predestination thing? How does it work? How does, how does that mean that God is still good? All that kind of stuff? Dive into that. And if you're in your groups or have time to do it or you want to make extra time to go through that, I provided a third page with some verses in there, okay? Uh, if you want to invite me to that growth group, I'll come. And I'll, you know, I'll like hand canograph it, you know. I'll, I'll be like the Bible answer man for that night. I don't think I have all the answers, but we can work it through. More importantly is why Peter put this in here to begin with. He doesn't want us to go, oh my goodness, I'm going to stop reading. I'm so confused. <laughs> he doesn't want you to stop reading. He wants you, he wants to drive home his point. And his point is not about the fact that the people who disobeyed were destined to disobey the point that drives home is the contrast the contrast is you are not them you have been chosen and the, the verses that follow are some of the most encouraging uh, uplifting comforting verses about christians that you find in the bible he says this honor is for you who believe and then he does a little side contrast, but for those who do not believe, it's been a stumbling offense. Verse 9, but you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You didn't want to crawl out of darkness. You like the comfort of darkness. You like how darkness covered all the stuff that you like to do. But he called you out of it into his marvelous light. There was a time when you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There was a time when you had no business thinking about receiving mercy. You had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. So what his point? His point is not that we should ask Why are people going to spend eternity away from God? The point that he's trying to contrast is, wouldn't wouldn't we all be in that boat? Wouldn't we all be going down that path? Haven't we all fallen short? Don't we all reject him? Don't we all stumble over Christ? 
It's dumb. Jesus is trying to cramp my style. I want to live how I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. That's all of us. Until something happened. And you all have a different story. You were 12. You were 10. You were 34. Whatever. You know, you were, you were um, at a camp. You were at a church. You were at a movie. We all have different stories about the time that the moment happened. A light bulb came on and you repented and you believed. God chose you. God plucked you out. The emphasis that Peter's trying to provide is not about predestination and free will. The emphasis he's trying to provide is we would all be stuck in that situation, enslaved to sin, but you're not. You were called out. You have the ability to grow up into salvation. You can be holy. They can't, but you can. He's brought you to a place as a special prized possession. And so we don't think of a God who's looking up from heaven like, look, I sent Jesus to die for you. The, be- the least you can do, the least you can do is stop lying. The least you can do is stop slandering people on Facebook. Stop it. I'm so upset with you guys all the time. The image instead is, not, is a God who wants you to live holy lives because it's your privilege to. To live holy lives because that's what the Father is like and you love the Father. The Father has brought you into a relationship with Him and now you have the ability to grow up into Christ. He is doing a work in you. He is building you up with others. This is a communal thing. Living stones being built on that cornerstone to be different. And we're not different on our own energy or because we're better than other people. We're different because we've been called out of darkness and into light. We see now. Where we were blind before, we see now. I'm going to close with this, this last, and it's, a new te- it's an Old Testament quote or reference. He says, once, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Some of you remember the book of Hosea. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And God comes to Hosea and he tells him, I want you to do something. I want you to be like a living analogy. I want you to live out a parable for me in front of the people. Okay, God. And he tells Jose, I want you to get married. He's like, all right. I'll start looking. I'll get on, you know, um, IsraeliMatch.com and, and start getting my profile together. He's like, no, 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 no. I know exactly who I have for you. You picked? I picked someone perfect for your marriage. Man, this is awesome. She's probably going to be great with kids. She's probably going to look pretty decent, I hope. I don't know what God's tastes are. He's got all kinds of things going on in his head. And then he's like, I want you to marry this woman that is known for sleeping around all the time. And in fact, she's not going to change when you marry. She's going to keep doing it to you. It's going to break your heart. It's going to kill you. So get the marriage together and um, we'll talk. Right? Not very uh, encouraging news for Hosea as he's entering into marriage that is one of the most painful things you think of joseph and mary and as great as mary was when joseph heard that she was pregnant he's like ah i guess this isn't gonna work because that's so painful to feel that sense of betrayal they were already betrothed hosea goes into this knowing this is going to be the situation she's not gonna love you she's gonna walk away from you she's gonna take advantage of your provisions And eventually she's going to run away. She's going to have kids with other men. But I want you to marry her. Why in the world 
Are you doing this to me, God? God's plan was to put this picture in front of Israel to say, I'm the husband in this story. I'm Hosea. And you're Gomer. I provide for you and you betray me. I call you as my people and you want to live like the other nations. I do miracles for you. And then as soon as they happen, you forget. You forget. And you want something else. You want someone else to be your shepherd. You want someone else to be your husband. You like the benefits that you get from my provision. You get mad if I don't provide. If a storm hits you, you get mad. If there's a drought, you get mad. You want my protection. You want my provision. But you don't want to serve me. You don't love me. But even though you don't love me and even though you reject me, my love runs so deep, I run to the farthest reaches and I go and get you. Gomer's lost. She ends up on an auction block where men are gathering around trying to outbid each other to have her. God sends Hosea and Hosea goes into that marketplace and makes sure that he outbids everyone and he buys his own wife. And in that book, in the second chapter, God makes it clear what the story is about. You were not my people, but you will be called my people. There was a time when you did not receive mercy, but you will receive mercy. And what Peter is saying is, we live in the time of that ultimate fulfillment. Where even though we are exiled, we're not in heaven, we're roaming around in this place, and it's difficult to live here, you are a prized possession. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen race. Not because of what you've done, but because of His sovereign provision on your behalf. Now, if that doesn't motivate us to live for Him, nothing will. But I'm willing to wager that if you've come and you've tasted that the Lord is good, you're going to want more of it. Holiness isn't weird to you. You crave it. Holiness isn't rules that just make your life difficult. They're privileges that make your life enjoyable. Now, if you're on one side of it, you're thinking, that's like the dumbest thing I ever heard. I cannot understand that whatsoever. That's because you're still stumbling over Christ. But if when I'm saying that, you're going, yes, it isn't about craving rules. It's about craving Him, Himself. I hunger for God Himself then you are a part of this chosen race that God has called out of the darkness into light. You have the ability and the privilege to go outside of these doors and live for Him, even if you're mocked for it, even if you're reviled for it, because you don't live craving for their approval. You live craving for the Lord Himself. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. and. Um...